Hi and welcome to Conversations, a monthly podcast from GSFM. The series will focus on investment concepts and outcomes of interest to you and your clients. Our first series focuses on income. At a recent industry event, John Moroni, CEO of the SMSF Association, commented that there's tens of billions of dollars sitting in cash in term deposits for people in their 60s, 70s and 80s. While retirees are very keen on stability of capital, they do need income. And over the past 10 years or so, cash has not delivered. Interest income aside, where do investors go in their search? Today's podcast features GSFM CEO Damien McIntyre and investment strategist and rates and bond expert Stephen Miller. Together, they'll look at the income landscape, where we are and why we're here and where it's likely to go next. The next podcast in this series will feature conversations with a number of our investment partners to examine generating income from fixed income, Australian equities and global equities. But before I hand over, I need to read this important notice. The information contained in this podcast is general and does not consider your objectives, financial situations or needs. The information and views contained in this update reflects, as of the date of recording, the current opinions of the participants and are subject to change without notice. Before making an investment decision in relation to a fund, investors should consider the appropriateness of this information, having, no re having regard to their own objectives, financial situations and needs. This podcast was recorded on Tuesday, October the 12th, 2021. Over to you, gents. Thank you, Tracy. Uh, and welcome everyone to the GSFM podcast series. As Tracy mentioned, the objective is to bring advisors a series of conversations with seasoned funds management professionals to share their insights into the asset classes they've made their own. As we know, Australia has an ageing population and demands for income from this ever-increasing cohort of people are huge. We also have high levels of household savings presently as a result of this COVID crisis and a lack of spending on behalf of uh, the, the population. So this only adds to increase the demand for income products. However, unfortunately, there's not much on offer. When we look at uh, the, the, the level of bond rates, and in particular then when we look into term deposits, I noticed this morning that you can get the princely sum of 35 basis points on a 12-month term deposit at the, at, the, uh, at the CBA, investors are really stuck with this dilemma of, of low absolute rates. Adding to that, inflation only exacerbates the situation. Uh, even if we worked on an inflation rate of the aim of 2%, we have significant negative real yields. And if the inflation genie is out of the bottle, this is only going to make the situation far worse. So joining me this afternoon, as, as uh, Tracy mentioned, is Steve Miller, and Steve Miller is a, a, a uh, is formerly the head of of Australian fixed income at BlackRock, and before that uh, Merrill Lynch and the old Bankers Trust, and he's been investing in the bond market for over 35 years. Steve, good afternoon. Damien, how are you? Very well, very well indeed. Now, with this as the backdrop, what what does this all mean for bonds? Uh, look. I think you've, you shaped the, the question well. I mean, what we've had is, uh, you know, uh, we're in unprecedented territory uh, when it comes certainly to government bond yields and, and for that matter, credit bond yields. And as you've articulated, the problem then is not only can, uh, are yields so low as to uh, not generate sufficient income, but there starts 
too to be concerns about whether they have the right defensive properties in the context of a multi-asset portfolio. So there's two elements to this. We, we sometimes in the investment world use the terms defensive and income interchangeably. And I think we've got to be careful that they, those two terms aren't interchangeable. They are, they have slightly different connotations. So that's the first thing. The second thing, if we're focused on income, you know, as you said, we've traditionally done this via bonds and we've traditionally done it via government bonds. Why have we done it by government bonds? Well, it's generally because during periods of crises, they have, they do have better defensive properties. Credit bonds can provide you with income, but you must be able to tolerate slightly more volatility, if you like, in your underlying capital. But getting back to your original question, you know, where are we with, with bond yields? Well, A, they're at close enough to historic lows. We've, we've risen a bit recently. And B, and again, you mentioned this in your um, in your introductory remarks, we're at a fork in the road in inflation. Now, there's a bit of debate in markets about this. You know, there are some, myself included, that worry that inflation might be a bit more persistent and worry that that inflation genie can get out of the bottle and worry that it might be, it, we might not be stopping at two or three or four, but we might be stopping and plateauing and not coming down at something, you know, a little bit higher than that. That's the first question. So if you're looking at, you know, and as you said, you're looking at negative real yields in that sense. So any income you get is going to be way short of the inflation rate. So that looks to be a problem. The second thing is if there is inflation, then we will get yields to adjust. But during that adjustment period, as we, we're, 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 as inflation takes hold, expectations adjust, bond yields rise investors are looking at potentially reasonably large mark-to-market movements negative uh, in their capital. So that's the dilemma, um, you know, and there are lots of ways to sort of skin that cat and maybe we can sort of canvas some of those as we go on. Yes, duration really is, this is the concept you were discussing a moment ago, Steve, where if you're the holder of a bond today and the 10-year rate, for example, would arise, you've lost money. And a lot of invest, investors in bonds, you know, on a mark-to-market basis, of course, don't necessarily expect to lose money in bonds, do they? No, they don't. And look, let, let's be clear about this. Probably up until a year or two ago, it's say in a multi-asset portfolio, you, you know, in the typical 60-40 equities bonds sort of portfolio, if you had 60 in listed equities and 40 in listed bonds and, and, and you did it with ETFs, you know, that's a pretty well-balanced portfolio. You know, by and large, you know, uh, through that period or through, in fact, for most of this century, bond returns and equity returns have been negatively correlated. So that's been great because bonds have been defensive and they've been able to provide you income. That's all good. Now, the problem we've got now is if you're investing in an ETF, you are passively accepting the characteristics of the index to which that ETF is measured. So let's say we're benchmarked against a government bond index. That's fine. You know, the credit, high quality credit. So no, no, no real concerns on that front. What you do have is you have a duration of that index. So in the Australian market, that's around five years. So if you've got a duration of five years, that means for every what roughly every one percentage point rise in bond yield, you would cop a five percent capital loss. So that's what you're looking at now. You don't have the capacity. A good active manager might reduce that duration, typically not close enough to prevent any capital loss. So once you buy an ETF 
you are passively accepting its characteristics with respect to duration. And if it's got a duration of five years, the global ones have even longer duration, then if bond yields rise sharply, then you will suffer uh, capital losses in your portfolio. So this is what, this is the dilemma. And going back to an earlier point you made about inflation uh, and the defensive characteristics of bonds that we've been talking about, it is true that whilst for most of this century, the 21st century bond, uh, bond returns and equity returns have been negatively correlated, for most of last century they were positively correlated and sometimes in a bad way, bond yields rose and equity markets fell. And if we do get a sustained period of inflation where central banks have to jam on the brakes and bond yields rise sharply, uh, it could well be happening at the same time as equity is falling. So, you know, we need to get a little bit smarter about diversification and we need to get a little bit smarter about how we diversify the defensive part of our portfolio and we need to get a little bit smarter about how we deliver income in a defensive context. So in, in that defensive context, how do you believe absolute return fixed income products can fit into that, uh, into that approach? The attraction of absolute return or unconstrained fixed income type products is, unlike as I mentioned with say an ETF, which is benchmarked to a, uh, an index, and you've got to passively accept the duration or the interest rate sensitivity of your capital to, in that index, absolute return portfolios typically have much, much, much lower duration. They generally manage to a cash benchmark and they don't seek to extract all their return from duration positioning or for that matter, credit positioning. So what they're trying to do is use manager acumen to generate income through selected exposures to maybe credit, to maybe emerging markets, to maybe inflation-linked bonds, which are very, very appealing if one is worried about uh, inflation staying high in the future, uh, to securitise high, high credit quality securitised assets, uh, currency positioning. All these things can feed into an absolute return portfolio, but importantly, it's not passively accepting the properties of a given benchmark not passively accepting the duration of a benchmark. As I say, they're typically much, much lower. So that's a good thing to have if bond yields are rising, much, much lower duration. And secondly, they don't passively accept some of the credit attributes of certain ETFs that have uh, credit in their benchmarks. So, you know, you're not going to knock the lights out in a return sense with this, but what they are is an alternative to you know conventional bonds or conventional bond benchmarks, an alternative defensive asset that can give you income whose attraction is arguably increased if we are going into a period where bond yields might march sharply higher as a consequence of inflation or whatever else. And when I say whatever else, I'm not being flippant. I mean, bond yields are close enough to historic lows. So, it's not axiomatic that they have to rise, but there are a number of reasons why we should be nervous about that prospect. As you said, the great thing about uh, those absolute return products is that, the, is that the fund managers have so many different assets or tools at their disposal. Uh, as you say, inflation-linked bonds, floating rate securities. They can be particular about what credits they want. They can be particular about what emerging markets exposures they want. They can use currency. A lot of them, too... Uh, can utilise a little bit of insurance to explicitly guard against downdrafts. So, for example, a number of uh, these absolute return or unconstrained 
products can use credit default swaps to mitigate the impact of any credit event upon the portfolio. So it does. It has generally they have access to a broader array of instruments and they can pull and push any a broader array of levers than what might be typically available, certainly from an ETF or even from, you know, your bog standard active uh, fixed income product, which after all is managed to a benchmark. So looking at the interest rate market generally, and I'm talking about um, cash rates as well as bond rates. Yeah. Where have rates been and, and how have central banks managed it? That's a good question, Damien. I, I might be giving away my age here, but I remember uh, sitting at a bank economics desk back in the late 80s and I think the cash rate in Australia at that stage was 17.5% and the market expectations at that time were for it to go to something like 21 or 22%. So that's where cash rates were. You know, we're going back now, uh, you know, 35 yeah, the late 80s, 30, 35 years, late 80s, yep. And where they are now is close enough to zero. And around the world, they're close enough to zero. And in some places, as we know, they've been negative. Now, that is that is unprecedented. Not only is that unprecedented within the lifespan of, you know, let's call it seasoning, uh, seasoned investors or seasoned um, participants in financial markets like you and I, but that's more or less unprecedented period of 100 years, right? So cash rates are low and bond rates are low. Now, bonds are slightly off their um, their historic lows, but in a number of places, you know, in in Germany, Switzerland, they have been in Japan, we've had negative bond yields. You know, so try and get your head around that. What you do is you're paying the government to hold their bonds. So if 10-year bond yields in Germany are minus 20 basis points, for the pleasure of owning a 10-year German government bond, you pay the German government 20 basis points, which, I don't know, that doesn't seem smart because you're buying the bond. If you're going to hold it to maturity, you're going to guarantee yourself a loss. Where bonds have been, 30, where, where rates were 30, 35 years ago, that was probably unprecedentedly high, but where they are now is unprecedentedly low. And I think the big difference, say, there's been people like, you know, there's been people around, myself included, that every now and then have got nervous about inflation and thought bond yields might spike up. It hasn't happened, but I think... In the since the period of the great disinflation through you know the 90s and th- for most of this uh, most of this century, I think the risks are weighted toward the upside in inflation more so than at any other time since the late 80s. And I think if you accept that, you've got to say the risks are weighted uh, toward higher bond yields more than any other time since the late 80s or since the 80s. You know that's the conundrum that we're looking at. Uh, we're, we're looking at at this point in time. Yes, and it is a conundrum considering that. Um not only have governments gorged themselves on issuance at such low rates, but so too have um, corporations through credit securities all over the world as well. Sure, and you know why? Why wouldn't they? That's after all. That's, that's that. That was the intention of what central banks wanted them to do. They wanted them to. Uh, they, they wanted investors to get out of government bonds and start buying credit bonds start buying equities in order to sort of get the economies going again to fund, if you like private sector expansion. But it's interesting when it comes to credit bonds, and we've touched upon this. You know, I said at the start, we've got to, we sometimes use defensive and income as meaning the same thing. But there are subtle differences, and it does, that's the case when it comes to credit bonds. Credit bonds generally can provide you with good income, but in certain circumstances, uh, they're not a defensive, necessarily a defensive instrument because again, you can have big mark-to-market capital losses in your investment while still delivering the income. 
Obviously, if the credit if, if the credit doesn't go broke, that's all fine, so long as you have the capacity to wear that mark-to-market movement, and not all investors do. So credit's not necessarily a, a defensive investment, but it's a good income investment. And if you're investing in credit bonds or corporate bonds, I think what you have to do is you have to be mindful that you can have big negative mark-to-market movements in your capital. And we saw that briefly through the GFC, particularly with certain bank bank uh, issuance, where there was big negative mark-to-mark movements in the capital price of bonds issued by banks, but they continued paying income. Now, if you held on, well and good, that's fine, because, you know, the capital has the capital prices appreciated again. But if you couldn't, or were looking at income, or had to redeem, or whatever, you were crystallising some big losses uh, on your portfolio. So, yes, credit can provide income, but don't get that confused with it being a necessarily uh, a good defensive asset. So, so in terms of interest rates and inflation, we're in a, an incredibly interesting moment in time of, of the world's history. We, we had this horrible COVID event last year, which for a period of time slammed the brakes on production and the movement of goods all over the world, which created supply issues, which is now filtering through to uh, higher inflation numbers. And we've even got companies being so bold as to say that um, they're unconcerned about putting their prices up, which is something which is quite unique in the history or the context of the last 20 years. Where do we, where do you think we are in this inflation narrative for want of a better description and, and, yeah. what, and what do you think is um, the likely outcomes as, as, as we roll through the next year or so? Uh, look, I, I am, I'm a self-confessed inflation worry wart, right? You know, and I've been worried unnecessarily on occasions in the past. Uh, I'm worried this time around though and I think, as I, as I said earlier, I think there is an argument, and a very good one, that said the inflation portents now are as negative for higher inflation or are pointing toward higher inflation in a way they haven't done going back to the 70s and 80s. You mentioned supply constraints. Some people, including some central bankers, will assert that because it's supply, it's all transitory and it doesn't matter, you know, inflation will flip up, but it'll come back down again, don't worry. The Fed told us that back in March when they forecast uh, their preferred measure of inflation, the core PCE, to be 2.2% for 2021. They revised that up again to about, I think, to 2.8% from memory in June, and they've recently revised it up again to 3.7. So basically, inflation is going to be close to double. The, the Fed's now forecasting inflation in 2021 to be close to double its target and close to double what it was forecasting at the start of the year. So that's the, the first thing to bear in mind. The second thing is to look back to the 70s. The inflation, the initial inflation boost then, or a large part of the inflation boost then, did come from supply shocks, like namely the oil shock. And what happened was that uh, central banks accommodated the oil shock and it fed into expectations and started to change price and wage setting behaviour, which meant that it adopted an era of permanence. And the worry is that that's happening now, not on a scale that we saw in the 70s, I'm not saying that, but the worry is that's happening now, that inflation can only be transitory if it doesn't affect price and wage setting behaviour. But as you mentioned, firms are putting up prices. They're seeing other firms put up prices, so they're all doing that. 
Workers, so there are labour shortages, quite acute labour shortages in many areas of the global economy. So workers, quite naturally, are demanding higher wages, as, which is what the textbooks tell us should happen. I wonder whether inflation is as transitory as some of the central banks assert, because at the moment we're seeing evidence, albeit anecdotal evidence, that it is affecting wage and price setting behaviour. That's more obvious in places like the US and Europe and the UK than it is in Australia. But my own view is that, you know, it, it will occur here. And so once it starts doing that, that's when you start to worry about the inflation genie getting out of the bottle. And once it's out of the bottle, it's bloody hard to get it back in. As we saw back in the early 80s, when Paul Volcker had to raise interest rates, you know, I think the prime rate from memory then went to close to 20% in order to snap the inflation stick and get price inflation and wage inflation back to more manageable levels that were more conducive to a better functioning of the economy. So I do worry about inflation. I think there's another other couple of things to worry about too. You know, you talked about household savings, and that's true here, it's true elsewhere as well. Once we get through this, there's going to be a lot of spending. Others point to some structural elements that mean that inflation bets are a bit more two-way rather than one-way, that is down. You know, a former Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee member, Charles Goodhart, he was a very distinguished professor at the uh, London School of Economics, uh, and a former Morgan Stanley economist, Manoj Pradhan, they've written a book saying that, look, the big reason that we're declining inflation, or one of the big reasons that we're declining inflation for, let's say, since the Berlin Wall fell, is there was unprecedented globalisation in both goods and labour markets. You think of all those Eastern European, highly trained Eastern European workers now being able to travel the world. At the same time, you had a lot of outward uh, migration from, of skilled workers from China and India and the likes, all leading to a wage shock, which depressed wage growth. Um, that process has largely run its course. Baby boomers are now at a level of peak participation uh, in the workforce. They're leaving the workforce. So those things that drove wages lower over the last 30 years are on the cusp of reversing. And that might mean that Right at the time we're getting these supply shocks from the pandemic, we're also getting structural reasons why uh, inflation or why these inflation suppressors are no longer as powerful. And that's at the same time, too, where we're seeing a push for, for greater regulation of product and labour markets, which will raise business costs and sort of add to inflation pressure. So, yes, I am worried. I'm not saying we're going into a 70s replay, but I am worried that we might have to get used to slightly higher rates of inflation, more than what central banks have, have targeted or are forecasting for an extended period yet. This is probably um, unkind, but <laughs> I, I, I describe um, quantitative easing in, in anticipation of central banks in, in bond markets around the world to manipulate interest rates lower. I, yeah. I, I, I once thought of that as the most elaborate experiment, economic experiment that I've, in my lifetime, and I would, now, I've, I've always been curious to see how that plays out. Surely, with the prospect of rising inflation, this only intensifies the pressure on central banks and governments, given their levels of indebtedness. I haven't envied the job of central banks. We don't know what the counterfactual is, so if they hadn't done QE, we may well have been in a worse circumstance. Situation, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the first thing. 
We can probably say that the experiment looks to be have been successful in preventing perhaps even worse outcomes and in mitigating a more extreme form of dislocation as a result of the pandemic. But there are always going to be exit problems when it came to exiting from, you know, what are emergency settings in uh, monetary policy. And I think the other thing the central banks have had to contend with is they haven't got much help from other forms of policy. They are now in the form of fiscal help. And we've seen that here in Australia. We've seen it in the US. We've seen it in the UK. We've seen it in Canada. We've even seen it in Europe where for institutional reasons it's, it's been a little bit harder to enact. But, you know, that help, it did come, but it was a bit late and it wasn't always optimally targeted, if I could put it that way. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, this is where I think this notion that because it's supply side, it's temporary, is a little bit dangerous. But we've seen some sort of backsliding on some of the market-based reforms, particularly the product and labour markets, that were made in many economies through the 80s, 90s and into the 2000s. As I say, that's sort of reversing now. And there's a a greater desire for whatever reason, and I'm not saying, you know, it's well-intentioned, for greater regulation. I wonder whether, A, that's going to be effective, and B, that's going to mean that we go back to the sorts of economies we had in the in the 60s and 70s that were a little bit sclerotic, not very flexible, and prone to having supply shocks manifest themselves in more persistent inflation. So I don't blame the central bankers. I think the experiment, the choice was between a rock and a hard place, I think the experiments largely work and what it's set out to do. I think there are exit problems. I think the problems are being compounded because central bankers haven't always had support from other arms of policy, including fiscal and including structural or supply side type policies. And I think that's, that's where we're potentially going to have to put our thinking caps on about A, what happens to inflation and B, how do we construct portfolios that better protect our investments from the ravages of inflation. Yes, and that takes us back to where we started, really, is that government bonds in a rising interest rate environment um, needed to be treated with great caution, simply because... uh, I mean, the the great thing about a bond investment is that if you hold it to maturity, you get get your money back. Yeah, 100 cents in the dollar, and you pick up a coupon along the way. Unfortunately, in the professional markets and in in the unit trust industry, these investments are marked to market every day and investors have to wear that volatility and don't necessarily have, well, let's just say the patience to wait 10 years for $100 to be returned. And some are running down their capital. And so if they're running down their capital, that means they have to incur losses. I, I think you raise a good point too because... We've focused most of today's discussion on bonds, but there are, you know, for income, there's other products out there that are worth exploring in the current environment. You know, there's a lot of equity-based income products. And even investors, sophisticated investors like the Future Fund, they've said, look, we're not going to own much by way of nominal government bonds. In fact, our defensive asset of choice is equity income, whether it's by allocation to maybe consumer staple or something like that. There are a number of equity income products out there that can be a good substitute for bonds, particularly when you, if one is worried about a fairly large adjustment in bond yields back to a level where, again, they might be attractive and provide decent income. So, you know, let's not write off. We've talked about absolute return. We've talked about inflation-linked bonds. Let's not also write off equity income 
as also something that investors could look to provide them income through this period. I think in, in looking at that, though, if you're looking at equity income, you're looking at defensive equity. So don't expect, you know, when you get the stellar returns that we've seen, don't attach generally to defensive equities. But they have that, that, that nice attribute that they provide you with a decent amount of income. They do. And a lot of those mature consumer staple type companies or defensive companies, again, as we noted uh, earlier on in the conversation, have become more comfortable with putting their prices up. So at least they offer investors um, some sort of hedge on inflation as well. Uh, exactly. Well, exactly. they provide you some income. They are potentially, you know, subject to a number of other, you know, moving parts. They've potentially got that sort of stable more stable capital attribute and can deliver income rather than, you know, the, the riskier growth part of the equity complex. Okay, so in summarising our, our discussion with respect to um, investments in, in fixed income and bonds generally, I think we can agree for the time being that we have to look at um, government bonds with, with some caution and be careful about the duration risk that uh, investors might be incurring in a in a rising interest rate environment, but noting that if, if interest rates did rise far enough, that they would become once again an attractive and defensive asset class. I think that's true. The, the only proviso I'd add is what you might want to do is downweight nominal and increase inflation-linked government bonds, and that is going to give you some protection if you're worried about inflation. But sorry, go on. Yes, well, that, that leads us to the unconstrained or the absolute return bond funds where yeah. they do have those tools, the managers have those tools at their disposal. It's not uh, buying an index blindly. This is, um, they're much shorter in duration and, and, and have those floating rate instruments in their toolbox. Exactly. I mean, it's funny, you know, uh, we sit around saying the first lesson of investing is diversification. I mean, I think that should apply to the defensive part of the portfolio as well. Don't just think your defensive component should be nominal government bonds. Think about inflation link. Think about absolute return. Think about equity income. You could even think about, if you weren't so desirous for income, things like gold or, you know, all those sorts of things I think are um, important as either an income, you know, in the bond space or defensive if you're worried about inflation, even if you look at commodities, notwithstanding the fact that they don't offer any income. Yes. Well, Stephen, thanks very much for an interesting conversation. Uh, I look forward to our next discussion in the, in the GSFM podcast series.